Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Friday, February 25th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are a lot of strands of the Ukraine conflict that compel me. The most pressing is military, but now I'll make a statement against interest. If you want to know how close an amphibious landing is to Maripol, a podcast, maybe not your best medium, I would check CNN or I am following 30 or so really good Twitter accounts, a couple of them, Michael D. Weiss, Michael Kaufman, that's K-O-F-M-A-N, Jennifer J. Jacobs covers the White House for Bloomberg, Philip D. Stewart, all good. Twitter follows. Some of the less compelling news is, for instance, that Russia says sanctions will cause the International Space Station to crash. Well, if it does, I am sure Russia will then blame the Nazis. Also, Russia barred from the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, at least this tells us why Russia waited to invade until after the Olympics. It wanted medals. It needed glory. I mean, who knows how Putin's mind works? Maybe if Kamila Valieva hadn't falled, Donetsk wouldn't have either. So let me dedicate this space to unravel one monetary-related mystery regarding Ukraine, and I will dedicate the spiel to talking about another, the markets. Benjamin Wittes will join us in a few minutes to talk not just about the war in Ukraine, but the Supreme Court. So, will sanctions work? As you know, they almost never do. Talked about this a couple days ago. Not sanctions alone, they don't work dispositively. Though it is true, but for sanctions, some conflicts perhaps would have, I would say, would have continued on longer than they did. What sanctions do is they impose costs. The accrual of these costs can convince a leader to make the strategic choice to abandon a once embraced strategy. You know this, right? You don't need me to spell this out. The only reason I'm doing so, and I'm sorry I'm maybe speaking down to you if I clearly point out what sanctions can and can't do, is it seems like the White House press corps is totally unread in on the use of sanctions. They were quibbling with the president. You said sanctions would work, but there's still a war. For instance, Michael Scheer, who's the White House correspondent for the New York Times, tweeted yesterday on February 11th, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said that the president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. But today, President Biden told us no one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. Those are basically the opposite of each other. No, they're not. They're not not even on their face are contrasting that believing that they are intended to deter and the truth statement is they didn't prevent anything. No, they're not opposites. But also, sorry, I guess I got to explain this. Sanctions are a tool and all tools together, we hope could have a cumulative effect. But I'm also here to tell you they probably won't. And the sanctions that the EU and the US has passed are strong. They have teeth They're meaningful, Nord Stream 2 being shut down, freezing personal assets of oligarchs, cutting off banking, cutting off loans. It's all good sanctions, maybe not 100% of what can be done. I'm looking at you, Swift. But everyone who looks at sanctions says these are real meaningful sanctions. However, Putin is a prepper. Not only did he amass troops on the border, he got his balances in order. Putin has a lot of reserves because the country has a shockingly low level of debt. How low? Well, Japan has a GDP to debt ratio of over 200. 
I remember it was the late 90s and they had just gone through a couple of crashes and their debt level reached 100% of GDP, meaning they owed more than they actually produced in a year, right? If all of Japan, everyone worked and the entirety of the economy was just used to pay down the debt, it wouldn't have covered the bill. That's 100% of, uh, of debt to GDP ratio. And at the time, the people who knew about such things said, this is unbelievably high. This is shocking. This is unsustainable. And it might be unsustainable, but for how long? Because like I said, now that they're quite above 200, people are saying this is shockingly high. And it is. But the Japanese economy keeps chugging along. The other countries with debts up in that stratosphere and none are as high as Japan are basket case economies like Sudan or Venezuela or Lebanon, poor Lebanon. When you get over 100, so let's go down from the 200s and the high 190s, you'll hit the United States, which has a pretty high debt to GDP ratio of 133, pretty high. And then around 100, a little over 100, you get some large European economies, you get Spain, you get France, go down a little bit, Canada's at 110, go down to pretty much the safe zone, maybe a little high, 85 is where UK is. I think the uh, World Bank put out an advisory that anything above 77 is something you should watch out for. Germany, stolid Germany. They're there at 60, but keep going down. Keep going down. Now we're hitting microstates. Now we're hitting countries where if they buy one extra boat for their Navy, it could spike the debt in noticeable ways. And then you get to Russia. Depending on how you count, Russia has the ninth lowest debt to GDP ratio. Under Russia are countries that are really cities like Macau and Hong Kong. Also Afghanistan's there, which at least pre-Taliban takeover didn't really spend money. They they just got international aid or if they uh, were loaned money, it was at such great rates. It didn't really affect the, the debt at all. What I'm saying is that Russia's debt is unfathomably low and they have a huge capacity to add to their debt. The oligarchs don't care much, but the government can run huge deficits for quite a while before matching anywhere near where Europe is, getting to where the United States is. They have a lot of leeway, a lot of runway, and as we know, they like to use their runways to bomb. Plus, if the war stays popular with the people of Russia, I mean, Russians have shown that they will sacrifice a lot of things. They're not like the United States when it comes to losing one or two of their choices for bespoke honey or lavender-scented iced tea. We go nuts, they do not care. They will put up with scarcity of everything but the absolute necessities. It's another reason why I think the question that will determine this entire war and Russia's willingness to stay is one thing, how many body bags are headed back on transports to Mother Russia. Though Russia has reportedly sent mobile crematoria to the front, which is chilling, but it does confirm that in this one, Putin's calculations are similar to mine. On the show today, I spiel out U.S. markets, which seem to have shrugged off, maybe even embrace the first war between sovereign states in Europe since World War II. How about that? But first, one question about this shocking invasion is why was it a shock? Did the national security community whiff on Putin's intentions? Or is it more that the people who are tasked with listening to the experts refuse to hear them? Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare stops by with his insights plus his assessment of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson.
Today is a big news day. There is a new potential Supreme Court justice who has just been introduced to the public. And of course, war wages in Ukraine. If only there was an organization that somehow sat at the intersection of law and warfare. Oh, lawfare. Benjamin Wittes is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of, recently, Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hey, man. It's good to see you again. (laughs) Yeah. Since you've been doing this, this defined as being involved in analyzing the news and national security and writing editorials and working in newspapers... Is this the most consequential act by a state actor that you that you can remember? Well, it's certainly one of them. It's the most dramatically warlike act, you know, so actual interstate war, which used to be a real common thing in the life of nations is since World War Two, really, really rare. I mean, it happens now and then. Uh, and. Russia has not invaded another country since Afghanistan. That's 1979 when we were children. In the years since World War II, the average means by which countries have interacted with one another really have not included war. And this is a dramatic departure from that. The main reason why borders have been stable for so long is not just treaties, not just threat of force if they were not stable. It's the rational self-interest of most of the people who could do anything about it. But now Vladimir Putin at least perceives his own self-interest as being within the acceptable field of risks to go over the border into Ukraine. Do you think he's right So obviously that requires uh, predictive powers that I don't have. My strong suspicion is that in the short term, he is right. That is, uh, he can invade Ukraine. There will be consequences. The action will be bloody, uh, is bloody. um, But that is, those are costs he can absorb in the short term. The, The hard question is in the long run. Right. Right. You can take Ukraine, but can you hold it? This is a very large country. It has 44 million people. This is not like overrunning Grenada or uh, or even Crimea or even Crimea, where they drove out a lot of the population that wasn't sympathetic to the action Um, and holding a hostile country over a long period of times, even when it's small is very difficult to do, actually. And Ukrainian nationalism is a real thing. Uh, Putin has made sure over the last 15 years that it is has an increasingly anti-Russian bent to it. And so I'm not at all confident he can do it. It's a rational act if you figure in the long-run need to keep control of, of what you are taking in the short term. All right, I want to get to keeping it in a second, but I discern from reading the columns in Lawfare and listening to the podcast, but not just Lawfare, everyone kind of representing all all the whole continuum of the national security um, establishment, even some outside the establishment. And the general consensus was that Putin wouldn't do it. It wasn't that you know Biden and Jake Sullivan 
were assuring us he wouldn't do it. They were, in fact, uh, especially towards the end, saying that he wants to do it. But there was there was surprise. There was surprise by the people who are Putin watchers and who make predictions about what would happen. Different levels of surprise. I would say the very, very smart people weren't shocked, but there was surprise. And is the reason that there was surprise, first of all, you could comment, um, you're more plugged into this world uh, than I am. Maybe I'm getting a selective sample. But is the reason there was surprise something like uh, we in the West, the assessors, had this, what you just articulated, this assessment of what his long-term prospects would be, not good. So maybe they're, maybe we're just wrong about that and he's right about that. But also, we failed to see in the medium and short term how he saw the world in the medium and short term. We rested back on our assumptions of how the world works instead of thinking about Putin's assumptions. Yeah. So first of all, I want to challenge the premise here, which is I don't think uh, the national security establishment was terribly surprised by this. And the reason is that the U.S. intelligence community was so energetically uh, predictive of exactly this result. And the president made a, I think, remarkable decision to make these conclusions public in real time. And so you had this situation where sort of starting in December, the US intelligence community and the administration is saying, hey, he's building up forces here uh, uh, and he's he's seems to be really serious about this. And then, uh, you know, as recently as the other day, saying we think he has made the decision to invade. So I think, first of all, you know, we, we we crush the U.S. intelligence community intellectually when they get stuff like Iraq wrong, as well we should. Uh, we should acknowledge here that you would do very well as an analyst and, a you know, as a consumer of news to have followed the U.S. intelligence community's communications on this the way you might follow the New York Times. They did a superb job here. Maybe it wasn't the national security community per se, but from their concern to, and yeah, you could read Vindemann's reports and Hill's reports and the people who look at this. That is true. I won't, I don't doubt that. But to disseminate that information to the public, it seemed so much less than urgent and so surprising to so many people who are on TV or decide, what the headlines of the newspapers should be, maybe that is conspiring to convince me that the people whose job it is to know didn't know. Yeah. So I think that uh, let's distinguish between punditry and serious national security analysis. There was a real debate among serious national security analysts about how serious Putin was about this. There was also a lot of glib punditry. And I do think glib punditry um, tends to fall into the, oh, he couldn't be thinking about a land war in in Europe that we think of as really Asia um, because, you know, we don't do land wars in Asia anymore. Right. And I do think there was a lot of that. I think people who were looking at the satellite imagery, um, people who were, you know, who were looking at the Russian press, by the way, were much more alarmed than people who were going off of what they think the 
the zeitgeist would tolerate in world affairs where countries just don't invade each other very often anymore. So I've come to some sad, dire conclusions about this, but I want to check in with you to make sure that it's not these conclusions aren't being overly influenced by glib pundits and maybe are more in line with what the subject area experts would say. And I've concluded that the Ukrainian armed forces might have some capacity to do some damage to the Russians. But this will all come down to the resolve of the Ukrainian people, in essence, to be a counterinsurgency force, to fight for their land against this uh, very powerful invading army. Am I getting that right? Do you think that that is backed up by, by what the experts would say? I think that's right. Um, so I had a conversation on the Lawfare podcast with Alex Vindman about exactly this. Uh, and he, this was a, several days ago now before the invasion had begun. And he said he had no doubt that the Russian army could take as much of Ukraine as it wanted in the short term. The, the real question is what kind of an insurgency uh, the Ukrainians could mount. So I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I would add to it, you know, the Russians were prepared to simply level the city of Grozny in the second in the Second Chechen War. That was a very serious insurgency, and they crushed it. Um, and their behavior in Syria is actually consistent with that. And so I would say, the 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 Russian. Uh, willingness to kill large numbers of civilians is is not a is is not a trivial matter. You know the Russian the the degree of Russian brutality and counterinsurgency should not be underestimated. Further complicating the question, and something I've been thinking about is if you're an average Ukrainian, and if you are old enough, you remember when that means that you were a, a subject of the USSR. Maybe you make a calculation and take into account national pride and their definition of ethnic pride. You make into you take into account the calculation how much different or worse will my life be from living uh, under Russian rule now in 2022 to what it was a year or a year and a half ago? It's not like Ukraine was a flourishing democracy benefiting its people with all sorts of material goods or rights. You know, the difference, the delta between the perception of what life would be like under the Russians versus what life was like with a Ukrainian government of its own. That seems to me really important in trying to figure out how strong a counterinsurgency will be. Yeah. Or or, or how strong an insurgency will yeah. be. Well, I... I... You know, if if there had not been a Holocaust, we would remember the uh, Soviet, the Stalinist uh, uh, genocide in Ukraine in, in the 30s as, you know, one of the greatest mass murders of, of you know, of the century of the 20th century the uh the the forced famine yes this is the holodomor holodomor um, yeah. and you know this is you know largely forgotten in the west it is not forgotten in ukraine and um and so i don't know how to measure the ferocity of mass public sentiment about invading russians who want to take your sovereignty away from you but Boy, so I, I just would not suspect that most average Ukrainians are going to say, well, the Delta isn't that big between my life 
before and my life now, I, I just would not underestimate people's willingness to say this is a generational fight that we have had, that our parents have had and that our grandparents have ha have had. And, you know, uh, we need to be the masters of our own destiny. OK, Senor Lawfare, let's turn from the warfare to the law. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson aims to be Justice Brown Jackson. What are your uh, thoughts on her as a pick and her chances of confirmation? Well, so her chances of confirmation, I think, are extremely strong. Um, she is a eminently well-qualified individual. Uh, she has served as a district court judge for a number of years, was recently elevated to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the uh, most, uh, I suppose, the sort of most frequent staging ground for Supreme Court nominees. There is nothing surprising about her nomination. She was put on the D.C. Circuit in order to uh, effectively uh, groom her for this uh, nomination. Uh, she has been the leading candidate since uh, the time of her, uh, since the time that uh, Justice Breyer stepped down. Um, there have been a few other people named, including uh, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, who would have been my preference, frankly. But um, but uh, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson has always been the sort of first name on people's lips, and uh, nobody should be remotely surprised that this is the result. Um, she has a lot of things about her that will make uh, different constituencies that are important to Joe Biden happy. Uh, first of all, she is, uh, of, of course, an African-American woman, which um, Biden promised he was going to do. So that's uh, not a surprise. Uh, she's also a former public defender, which uh, a lot of people uh, who are uh, uh, in the progressive world uh, have been frustrated by the degree to which uh, prior Democratic nominees seem to get their credibility from coming from prosecutorial or academic backgrounds. Uh, and there's always a cry, why can't we have a public defender, you know, rather than somebody like, for example, Merrick Garland, who had a kind of famed career as a Justice Department official, or Elena Kagan, who had was a, you know, a, a very famous academic, but was also solicitor general representing the government, right? And so this is a, for the criminal justice reform people, this is a, uh, uh, that's an important element of her persona. Uh, whether it will be an important element of her jurisprudence is anybody's guess, but to the extent that biography is a signaling mechanism in Supreme Court nominations. This is, I think, an important one. So it's a it's a very unsurprising pick from, Bi from Biden. Uh, it's a person whose qualifications cannot reasonably be questioned. Um, and which is not to say they will not be questioned, yeah, but, but they reasonable. can't reasonably yes, be questioned. Yes. We're talking um, about and Senate I, confirmations. Where does reason come in? And yes. I do think she's likely to get... Um, 
uh, a relatively easy, notwithstanding the 50-50 Senate, a relatively easy uh, confirmation. Um, I do want to ask you about one of her cases that was overturned. This is one you're intimately familiar with. She ruled that uh, Don McGahn, when he was White House counsel, had to comply with the Judiciary Committee subpoena, writing presidents aren't kings. Was it, what do you, was it a Good decision? Was it, do you think this is going to be the kind of decision that will be uh, pointed to as problematic, or will it be unreasonably pointed to out of politics? Yeah, so I I am sure because everything is political uh, right now that that decision will be she'll be asked to account for it. But the truth of the matter is that the uh, president's assertion that she was responding to in that case of, of absolute immunity from, from a subpoena for uh, Don McGahn uh, was, uh, it's a highly controversial point. Uh, it is uh, a, an, a question that had not, uh, uh, does not have an extensive litigation history and those cases that they're are are not solidly against her at all. Uh, the case has kicked around uh, ever since until it was finally finally settled, uh, and it did not settle on the basis of Don McGahn not showing up and testifying. So I think you know this is uh, an area where uh, I think probably she her position was certainly not the position of the executive branch of the United States over across administrations, but it's not clear to me at all that uh, that she was wrong. It's certainly not an indefensible position. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's talk again about frippery and non-invasions or maybe confirmations. Ben Wittes, editor-in-chief of Lawfare. Thanks, Ben. Good to have you back, Mike. And now the spiel. Buy the cannons, sell the trumpets. I didn't know this was a phrase on trading desks until I checked in with one today and people who trade. But apparently there is a rule of thumb for stock management strategies when the tanks start rolling. Okay, but where have the tanks rolled in the last 70 years? I mean, now the asset class that dominates the stock market sells things like cloud storage and virtual reality immersion. We're still defaulting to wisdom crafted when Harry S. Truman was searching for an honest five cent cigar. Apparently we are, but let me back up. Yesterday as war raged in Ukraine and missiles rained down on civilians, the stock market reacted as if it had been hit by a 2S19 MSTA howitzer. It cratered. Here was emerging market specialist Tim Ash being interviewed on Bloomberg Surveillance saying the markets were sanguine about the risks of war and they shouldn't have been. Right. I mean, this is about hardcore European security. It's about energy. It's about, you know, heating European homes. Uh, and I think the fallout, as we've seen today, is very, very significant. Uh, you know, energy prices higher, <clears throat> supply disruptions. Are there going to be disruptions in manufacturing production in Europe because of this? Uh, in emerging markets, you know, it's, it's about energy importers versus energy exporters. And globally, it's stagflation, I guess, is, is, the, is the, the fear here. Mm. 
That made sense to me. As he spoke yesterday morning, I thought, maybe you did too, that the horrible scenes I would witnessing would be interpreted as a sign of worldwide instability and disruption, and therefore the markets would be down. Seemed logical. But by day's end, the markets rallied. Today, the Dow was up over 800, almost 2.5%. The Russell 2000, the S&P 500, they're up 2.25%. Have the markets simply become a one-to-one index of man's inhumanity towards man? Well, today on Bloomberg Surveillance, really the best of the financial casts, Seema Shah, the chief global strategist of Principal Global Investors, so she's the chief of the principals, had this reflection on what clearly was the dominant mindset of the day, the question whether should traders keep their money invested in the stock market or pull it out and put it in cash reserves. Yeah, you know, you see the volatility, you see the headlines, and of course, the knee-jerk reaction is going to be to go straight into cash. But when we look at previous geopolitical crises and the way that the market has reacted, it's really down to the macro backdrop. So she's saying this whole war doesn't really change the big picture. And with the markets, the big picture is about interest rates and inflation. And if you look at interest rates, there is actually good news. One financial friend explained to me that the war is definitely driving down oil prices. Of course it is. No one thinks otherwise. Well, that acts as a natural tax. Think of it as a dampener. It will force growth to slow. Growth is not a friend of inflation. And because of the natural tax, the Fed won't raise rates as high. They are going to raise them a little. But overall, it's good for stocks. And once it's explained to me, and I hope once I can explain it to you, it makes sense. And it's not immoral. It's amoral. But I could live with an economic system that is amoral, given the prevalence of the immoral on the world stage. So buy the cannons, sell the trumpets, diversify your international space station exposure, go long on rags, gasoline, and bottles, the, really the entire Molotov cocktail sector. But sadly, I cannot recommend shorting the mobile crematoria industry just yet. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of the GIST. Michelle Pesca is chief of gastrointestinal surgery at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. Thank you.